0: On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, legendary music producer and rock and roll Hall of Famer Jimmy Jam joins us, plus reaction to the series finale of Better Call Saul. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Accident. Jacob. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinske. It is episode number, get this Sue, 212. Palindrome. Ex- uh, yeah, it is a palindrome. But it's also like, who who would have thought we'd have kept this thing going? Do you realize that two-thirds of all the podcasts on Apple and Spotify and those places Are completely abandoned. They don't do those shows anymore. Two thirds of them are just dead shows with nothing new coming. People who started them and quit them.
1: Wow. Do you know how far they got, or just you just know? No, I just know they
0: they dropped off and they're no longer active uh, shows. So we we're survivors now. We're survivors. Two hundred twelve episodes. You kidding me? I know it's very exciting. Uh, So I forget where you are on Better Call Saul. Are you behind? You're done. Okay, so this isn't going to come out for at least a week. So I feel like we can talk about the finale of Better Call Saul. So I'll let you know if you've not seen it, if you're racing through the show, I know it's on Netflix and all that stuff and you're trying to get to the end. uh, I hate to say this, but turn the podcast off because we are going to actually delve into what went on in the season finale. Sue, what was your takeaway, or the okay. series finale?
1: Okay, turn the podcast off just for this part, and then hop back on. Come back on. That's a very come good back point. on for the guest.
0: Yeah, for Jimmy Jam, who's coming yes. up? Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, I, I really liked the the final episode. Um, you know, we, you and I had talked about what's going to happen to Kim. Yeah. And I think you said you thought that she was going to die.
0: Yes. I did. There was a, a long stretch where I thought Kim's going to die.
1: Right. And I thought that then that, that may happen, too. Um, but what I loved about it is that, you know, a lot of people and especially women would say to me, like, what 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 was she doing with him? Like, why would someone as smart and cool as her yeah. be with someone like like Saul Goodman, like Saul Goodman? Um, and it really made sense to me. In this episode,
0: okay, explain.
1: Well, I you know he, I I always believe that there was something kind of redeeming about him. There was a, a, a softness about him yep. in all of his craziness, and in in um in you know being a you know a shyster and all of that. There scam was always, man, yeah, yeah, scam guy. Um, and when he came clean in the courtroom, yep. after fighting. <laughs> To get a lesser sentence. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, I guess it wasn't until after he found out that Kim, you know, kind of, you know, turned herself in to a yes, certain extent.
0: Yes, right? exactly.
1: Um, and he completely turned around. Yeah. And was like, okay, I'm going to come clean and, um, I'm going to just spill it all out and, and put it all out there. And I think because of that, um, she came to see him. In prison. Yeah, I think I think that's right I think and, that's I, right. and I and I do believe that if the you know in if it were true life and you know what would happen in the future that she would continue to come see him and be true to him and maybe even try to help his defense in some way
0: yeah I I agree with you I mean they had those great that great scene at the end where they're both smoking cigarettes and the bars have created these shadows on the wall it's like it's such an amazing shot. So I'm kind of of two minds. I get the redemption story. You were looking for the redemption story and you got it. To, uh, Saul, you know, turn or Jimmy turned himself in and said, here's all the bad stuff I did. One thing I liked was that everybody from the Breaking Bad universe, at least that's still alive, got a moment, a scene. They go to uh, uh, Saul with Mike in the desert. Uh, they go to uh, him and Walter White. Uh, when they're down in that basement from uh, from Breaking Bad. I mean, the, uh, Betsy Brandt, who mm, played mm. Hank's wife, she gets a really nice sequence in there. Kim Wexler, I mean, Rhea Seahorn, it, it, something's not right if she doesn't get the Emmy because she was so good, especially in the penultimate episode where she's coming back from the, or going to the airport, I think, and she breaks down on the airport uh, van. It's just such a great scene. You know mm-hmm. what it reminded me of? Do you remember that movie Unfaithful? With yes. Yes with uh with Diane Lane? Yes. Do you remember the scene where she's on the subway car? She had just slept with that guy. Yes. She's on the subway car and she's just reacting to everything that just happened. That's yes. what that Ray Seahorn scene reminds me of.
1: Yes, uh, very of much so.
0: Um I also think it's nice that there's a redemption story, but there would have been something really edgy badness. I mean, bad is in the title of Breaking Bad. I would have loved to see Jimmy go full heel, uh, give evidence on Kim, get the sentence down to seven years and get out and resume his scamming in uh, in seven years. There's some part of me that wanted to see that. but I generally speaking, it's not breaking bad. There were not a bunch of guns. Uh, there was there was not shooting or anything like that. It was a lot more meditative. But I came away. Better Call Saul' is one of my ten favorite shows of all time. I just absolutely loved it.
1: Yeah, well, I was reading that Peter Gould was saying, Peter, you know, the executive producer, who actually, he wrote and directed this last episode. Ah. And he was saying that um, there was a different uh, ending, and they thought of just having Jimmy in the cell by himself. Mm. And he said that it just seemed cold, and he didn't want to do it. And then he talked about something that was very interesting, that when uh, Saul gave his spiel in court. Yep. Um, um, Bob Oden- Odenkirk said, "I want to do the whole thing over again," which meant that they would have had to spend a lot of money. They would have had to stay later. They, you know, I, I think it bled into maybe the next day. Okay. And he said that he got more emotional than he wanted to get, and oh, it didn't feel right. That's interesting. Yeah. So they reshot it. That's interesting.
0: So, I don't know if you noticed this in the post-credits sequence, they cut away to the rap, like, that's it, that's the end of Better Call Saul, they're on the set, Mm -hmm. and the last scene that they shot was Walter White and Saul Goodman. Brian Cranston was on the set for the final uh, scene, the final shooting day of Better Call Saul. Which is which is amazing because you've got these two characters who become iconic characters um, sharing the scene for the very end of that series. I, I just thought really really cool.
1: Yeah, and something thing something that was very interesting. I was just reading people's thoughts about the show, and they was saying how how Walter White like mirrored um, Jimmy's brother. Like, that, oh. like that, that last meeting with him where he was putting him down and yes. saying, you know, like, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. And I, it's funny because, you know, you don't really, you know, you didn't really see them together that much. Yes. And this moment, um, it was like, oh my God, that's so true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a parallel between Jimmy and his brother, I can't think, Is played by Michael McKean, mm-hmm. the guy who was like all nutty and covered with, foil and foil and yeah like nutty dude uh but always treated jimmy very very badly so that's interesting that's an interesting parallel and how
1: he kind of cowered sometimes you know or was quiet you know now i've not read any
0: reviews do people generally like it or do people generally not like it final episodes are really tough to nail
1: i don't i didn't see um anybody that didn't like it but Good. i'm i'm sure there are people out there that didn't I'm like sure. It.
0: <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure But uh, generally speaking, well-received. Everybody that I know watched it was happy with the uh, finale. And yes, Jimmy, Jimmy takes a, a uh, falls on the sword and there's redemption at the end of Better Call Saul. And again, just a great show. Uh, Do you have anything else, sir?
1: Well, I I don't know if you read about this, but um, did you hear the, what Snoop Dogg um, came up with?
0: No, no, (laughs) but I love Snoop Dogg.
1: He came up with a uh, a new breakfast cereal
0: okay. called Snoop Loops. <laughs> I, I think I, I may try a bowl of these. And uh, yeah,
1: do Snoop Loops have cannabis? Well, that's the big question everybody's asking. Uh, no, it is for kids. And uh, you know what I love about him? He's come up with some really wacky ideas over the years. So I don't know if you knew about this, but years ago, he went to Cadillac. And he pitched the idea of a model of a car called Snoop DeVille.
0: (laughs) The Snoop DeVille. That's very funny. Very funny.
1: How did they not go for that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. The thing I love about Snoop is I think he's a significant figure in modern social history. I think he was part of the mainstreaming. Of cannabis. I mean, you see him with Martha Stewart. You see him on Coors ads. He played the Super Bowl halftime show famously. Took a puff off a of blunt right before he went on stage. I mean, he's really been part of mainstreaming cannabis at a time when it's becoming legal in a lot of states.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember on one of his uh, one of the episodes that he did with Martha Stewart, they showed his part of the kitchen and her part of the kitchen and then he was showing all the stuff on the shelves and then he you know was like you know it, it was kind of like a, a game show you know yes like a game, yes a game show woman <laughs> and uh and he 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 goes over goes over to one area and it's his um his herbs yes oh his herbs <laughs> Which was just very, very funny. Um, but speaking of weed, I don't know if you know about this. I know Dr- nothing about weed. Just, just okay, to be no, clear. No, it's not about, yeah, well, it, about the story is about weed, but okay. it's not that you have to know anything about weed. So Draymond Green um, recently got married. Yeah. And at his wedding, he had a weed bar where someone was standing behind the counter um, rolling blunts for his guests. Very nice. So that's a first. Can I, I've, I've never actually, heard of, it, It's not. It's It's not first. No, I'm. I'm. I'm saying that's the first of me ever hearing that somebody actually had people like an actual like bud tender. A Um, bud tender. I like that. So um, at a bar. So I was at uh, a birthday party. Should I say it's a podcast at
0: Keyshawn Johnson's birthday party, and uh, there was a little tent, Mm -hmm. and there were tons of pre rolls there, and you could just pick up the pre roll based on what your taste was, and I think it's Keyshawn's wife's brand of flour. Um, I I mean, I got stoned at
1: Keyshawn's. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you haven't been somewhere where, you know, there were, you know, joints maybe in a bowl or something like that. But just the idea at a wedding that there would be an actual person um, standing behind a counter uh, rolling joints for everybody you know, that's that's like when you you go somewhere and, uh, you know, there's a there's a chef making personal omelets for everyone. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it was uh, pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, you got a bar at a wedding. So why don't you have a what do, you, what do they call it? Just a weed a bu-
1: tent, a, bu- a weed tent. Yeah, a, a weed tent, bud tent. A bud tent.
0: A bud tent. That sounds, that sounds classier. All right. Well, listen, uh, uh, our guest today, and I'm excited about this, literally one of the greatest music producers of all time, teaming with his producing partner, Terry Lewis. He's been nominated at the Grammys for producer of the year, 11 times winning five Grammys. As a producer and artist, he has 100 gold, platinum, and diamond albums. Jimmy Jam is here. Jimmy, thank you so much for doing this. Nice to be here, man. Nice to be here. So I want to start. So this is basically your life and career in 30 minutes, as much as we can get to. So are you ready for that? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. So uh, you shared with me a video of you playing with your dad on his 95th birthday. Can, can you talk about what brought all of that together?
2: Well, it would take the whole 30 minutes, uh, quite honestly. But uh, to try to do it short, uh, I had been estranged from my dad for almost 50 years. I I used to play with him and his band when I was like 12, 13 years old. And uh, one day he just left home and never came back. Hmm. Um, So we were kind of never really got in touch with each other, never really tried. Um, But over COVID, a kind of a combination of, I think, COVID and also um, me, my kids being grown now. Um, I just had a bunch of things. I I never want to leave things unsaid. And so I wanted to let him know that I didn't have any sort of ill will or resentment or any sort of thing for the choices he made. It wasn't that I agreed or disagreed with the choices, but I didn't feel that I wanted to lift that weight off of him because I'm sure he was feeling that weight. And so just kind of as circumstances happened, I ended up in Minneapolis about a year ago and we met briefly. And we then started doing a Zoom every single week because there's a, an author named uh, Andrea Swenson who's doing a book on him. So wow. she goes to his house every Tuesday. And so she would Zoom and say, and we'd try to connect the dots and answer questions that he couldn't remember and so on and so forth. And it just kind of grew into this thing where he said, you know, my 95th birthday, would you come play? And I hadn't played with him since I, like I say, I was 13 years old. And back then I was playing the drums. Oh, him. really? Yeah. So I was, I was his first drummer, and that's why I started out on the drums. So it was cool to actually sit and play keyboards with him, which is something that I'd never done, and kind of have this musical conversation with him. Oh, you know, that's beautiful. Back and forth. So it was a beautiful, it was a surreal week anyway, because that was the week that we got, um, it got announced that we were going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Yeah. Uh, mm.
2: and, and that same week, actually, I went down to the Kentucky Derby because both New Edition and Janet performed. So I literally had a week where it was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame watching Janet and New Edition sing about I don't know 50 of our songs. Wow. <laughs> but the highlight was was playing with my dad. It was just it was amazing. So That's it was a real cool. week, absolutely. Yeah. So
1: so was that was you playing with your dad was that just kind of a impulsive thing? Was it a surprise or or you, this was something that you you planned because did you, you had you talk to him prior that you're going you were going to do that?
2: Well, he had requested it, actually, on one of the Zooms that we were on. He requested, oh, okay. that, he requested that that's what he would like for his birthday, for his 95th birthday. Hmm. And I spoke to the gentleman that owned the club uh, that's actually kind of manages my dad. And so um, I, he said, yeah, it'd be great if you could come up. And my, not concern, but my biggest thing was, I don't want it to overshadow his night. Because the fact that he's playing, he still gigs all the time. Hmm. And so... I didn't want to overshadow what he was doing. And I think I even said, I think as it turned out, I watched one of his sets. He did two sets. I watched the first one and then I joined in on the second one, but I never wanted to make it about me because it wasn't about me. It was about him and, and his honor and his night. And, and it dawned on me the other day when we were talking about, because uh, the Rock Hall of Fame people have been calling me about different things, but my dad actually played on the very first rock and roll record that was done in Minneapolis. Really, was what was it? It was it? the song was called "Hi Ho Silver," and the artist was Augie Garcia. Wow! And my dad was the keyboard player in that in that band, and so it's kind of a full circle thing if you look at it like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so were cool. you? I, I so I grew up attempting to sing. Um, You know, I did like (laughs) musicals and stuff like that. Uh, And I still, you know, will sing a national anthem at a game. I've done that a bunch of times. But I am decidedly unmusical. Were you born musical? Totally. Totally.
2: I remember some of my earliest memories is standing in front of the TV set we had just got. This is when color TV first started, if you can imagine that. And I remember we got our first color TV set. And then we would always watch, whether it was Ed Sullivan or whatever the shows were, that there were music, American Bandstand or whatever, and I remember I would stand in front of the TV and just beat on the top of it, which I'm sure drove my parents crazy. <laughs> and eventually they got me a drum set, which I don't know whether that helped or hurt. But I uh, yeah, I had a drum set when I was a little a little boy, and there was always keyboards and stuff around the house because my dad always was playing keyboards. So I yeah, I grew up just immersed in music and just and loving it and just breathe. It's like my oxygen really. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, when I was a little kid, um, my parents bought me a drum set. I, I maybe, was like maybe six or seven years old, and I played was started playing, and my mother used to yell at me, for, y- making so much noise, and I said, do you not understand the concept of a drum set? <laughs> like she, she was like yelling at me. I'm like, what are you doing here? They're drums. They make a lot of noise. <laughs> Why don't you buy me a flute?
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> so you
0: met Terry Lewis, your producing partner. In uh, Was it in high school? Junior high school.
2: Junior high school. Which now is known as middle school, I believe.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, it, was like, it was like seventh grade, eighth grade, yeah. So, so me and Ireland on the radio have been together for 30 years. You and Terry have been together as producing partners for 40 years? 40 years
2: as producing partners and next year, 50 years as friends. We so met in
0: 1973. Is... Is it difficult to, because I I can tell you, you know, with me in Ireland, it's, there's a constant, almost like sort of negotiation to keep things going on. Uh, We're friends and all that stuff. But a lot of times people break up. What has kept you and Terry together all these, these years?
2: Well, I think overall the desire, I don't have a desire to make music without Terry. First of all, Um, I think we enjoy making music, but also it's the fact that we're not joined at the hip. And I love, and I, and I know people think we are, they just assume wherever I am, he is, and our interests are exactly the same and we do the same things and we don't, we're totally separate people, but we're, we're separate in our togetherness, I guess is what I would say. Hmm. And it is, and, and actually you and Ireland are probably a great example of that because you each have your own interests. You're doing the, your podcast. I know Ireland does the Laker game, so on and so forth. So you guys have things outside that you do. True. Which then makes it really great when you come together, you know, on the radio um, to do your show. So I think Terry and I are very much the same way. And I was telling people the other day that there's literally records that we have out that I'll hear them on the radio or I'll hear them somewhere. And I'll realize, wait, that's us. I had nothing to do with that record. Like I wasn't even in the studio that day. And Terry will go, oh, yeah, I did that the other day, or I took that song off your hard drive or whatever, you know. And there's different artists you talk to. There's some artists that would say, oh, Terry does everything. I don't know what Jimmy does. And some (laughs) some artists would go, Jimmy does everything. I don't know what Terry does. But it's kind of like, I'm sure you saw the Beatles
0: documentary. Yes, yes. The Peter Jackson one, yeah.
2: Yeah. So what was interesting about that to me was the Lennon and McCartney, because they're kind of The thought is that they're joined at the hip. And even me, I'm thinking they were sitting in a room writing songs together. That wasn't the case. A lot of the songs were just Lennon songs. A lot of the songs were just McCartney songs. But at the end of the day, it was always McCartney and Lennon. That's the
0: way Jam and Lewis is. Yeah, there's that great scene in that uh, documentary where uh, Paul McCartney is kind of feeling his way through get back. and, And he's sort of strumming away. And John kind of rolls in in the middle. Yeah, that creative process is really, really fascinating.
1: Yeah. So how how does the collaboration work? Because I, I worked with a writing partner for years and sometimes I would take some scenes and then she would take some scenes and then we'd combine it. How does that work with you guys?
2: Sometimes that works like that. Um, it can, it can be a whole lot of different things. First of all, one of us, sometimes both of us are really motivated by the same artists. Like if you say an artist's name to us, uh, you know, one of us usually will have a great inspiration. Like We'll feel like, oh, we got the, I got the idea for that. So sometimes it's a thing where I'll start the idea and then Terry will go, why don't we do it like this and, and we'll collaborate? Um, so that does work like that. Sometimes we literally will sit in a room together, particularly if it's a tight deadline type of thing or it's something for film or something for television where we both need to kind of lean into it heavily. We'll both sit in a room together and do it like that. But it really works in all different ways uh the tendency is i tend to be more involved with making the music the tracks and terry intends to be more involved with the vocals mm-hmm. and producing the vocals and, and writing the lyrics and i always say the reason terry's a great lyric writer is because it takes me a paragraph to say what he can say in a sentence
0: mm-hmm.
2: so he can just distill whatever i say down and just make it when we did um living in a world they didn't make with janet mm-hmm. um we, we we had seen the uh School shooting. I think it was maybe Stockton a while, obviously back in the in the late eighties. Yeah, we said we want to write a song about it. And so when Terry walked into the studio, we said, "Oh, we got this idea for a song. We got to write it about these kids. It's not their fault." And and I go, we go into this big long ten minute, you know, diatribe about what the song should be. Right. And Terry just goes, "Living in a world they didn't make." Hmm. We're like, yeah. And then yeah. he goes for fifteen minutes, writes you know, writes the lyrics
0: and it's done. Yeah. It's like, yeah.
2: okay. So that's what, that's, you know, Terry's, um, you know, his specialty.
0: So I'm also curious about how you and Terry work with the artists. So I, you know, I was a music DJ. Um, I played What Have You Done For Me Lately every 45 minutes for six weeks. And, you know, on 93QWRQN in Toledo, Ohio. I'm curious, I where does the artist stop? and you and Terry begin? In other words, let's just take that song. What have you done for me lately? How did that come together? What did you do? What did Janet do? What did Terry do?
2: So that's an interesting song because it was really a pivotal song in our careers. Um, the track for that song was actually a track that was intended for us. We were making the Jam and Lewis album. Mm. And so that track was one of our tracks. So what happened is we were making Control, and this is up in Minneapolis. There was an A&R guy named John McClain. And he came up to town to listen to everything we had done. And we played him, you know, Control and Nasty and When I Think of You and Let's Wait a While. And we're playing all these songs and we're thinking, oh, we got it. And at the end of the day, he goes, like all a and people do, he goes, I just need one more. Hmm. Like, What are you talking about? I just need one more. We said, no, forget it. So we go to grab a bite to eat. Terry puts a cassette in. The cassette is songs from our album. And we said, listen to this, John. So we started playing him songs. About the third song in, he goes... That's the one I need for Janet. I said, no, man, you're crazy. He said, play it for her. And if she likes it, she can have it. And I'm like, oh, you're giving our songs away? Okay, fine. (laughs) Next day, we go to the studio. We don't even tell her we're going to play anything. We just put the song on. She walks in. She loves it. She's like, oh, who's that for? And we said, well, you if you want it. She said, I want it. (laughs) That song became What Have You Done For Me Lately. So it was simply the track that we had done. That's all she heard. And then What Have You Done For Me Lately actually came from Something somebody had put something on the wall, um, like I can't remember what it was called. There was a place called Spencer's Gifts.
0: Oh, like, I remember, okay. Spencer. remember Spencer's every mall, yeah. So they
2: had these kind of hologram things that had little sayings on it, okay. And somebody had given us one that said, What have you done for me lately? but it had a bunch of other words on it, but that was the thing that I always remembered from it. And I just thought, Man, that sounds like a good title for a song, and we would always write. Anything we saw like that, we'd always write. We had the book of titles that we called it. And sure. Always write it down. So anyway, that's how it ended up becoming the song. And it's funny because that song or that saying has definitely lived on. I literally was watching uh, Stephen A. Smith today. Yeah, And he was ranting about the Yankees. And that's the thing he said. He said, I need, what have you done for me lately? I need Janet Jackson. <laughs> you know. And there's, I mean, literally I hear, I hear it used every day. So, and it was, like I say, it was a pivotal point because it was her first record. And John McClain was right. That ended up being the first single from the album and really set the tone of our, of our whole career. Really.
1: Have artists come to you guys specifically and said, I want you to write a song for, for me or us? All the time.
2: Yeah. 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 And, and, and we actually like that. And, and most of the time when we write songs, it is for a specific artist one of the things we've always tried to do is tailor the song specifically for the artist Um, and that doesn't happen unless the artist comes to us and and we feel like we can really make a great song with that artist. It's very rare, I mean I could probably count on one hand the times that a song got written for a particular artist but then that artist didn't use it and it moved to a different artist it's always whoever we write it for that's what it is. When we did Mary J. Blige when we did No More Drama with Mary J. Blige. Ah, what a great record thank you. And I, I remember when we did the record, it obviously was specifically for her. And I remember her saying, I love this record, but I'm not ready to do this quite yet. I'm going to put it on my next album. Hmm. And we're thinking, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. And of course, she called us every, you know, at that point, like every month. She said, you didn't give that song away, did you? And we said, no, no, it's your, it's your song. And about a year later, she said, okay, I'm ready to do it now. And she did it, and it ended up being the title track from the album, and, and certainly one of the seminal songs of her career
0: so. did she kind of grow into that song like i, yes. I remember years ago i interviewed paul anka who wrote um uh, my way yes. and when he wrote it he said i really wanted to sing this song but i hadn't lived enough life for it to really make sense so he gave the song to sinatra is that kind of what happened with that record
2: yeah totally i mean that I think with her, she didn't feel she was like, we knew her next step because a lot of Mary's records were based in pain and blues and that, but we knew in her personal life, she was really trying to turn things around and feel better about herself and, and make changes in her life. And so, because we saw that, we thought no more drama. And of course we use the, the, we sampled the theme from young and restless, the Mm -hmm. soap opera because I'm a big soap opera fan. So I thought that's a perfect song or a perfect (laughs) sample to use. Um, but she, she, yeah, she truly wasn't ready. She said, "I'm not ready for this yet." But my next album, I will be, and she was. And she blew the doors off, and sure, yeah.
1: So, so do do artists sometimes come in, come to you guys with like a seed of an idea and say, "I would like to expound, expound on this," and then yeah. you work collaboratively with yeah. them. Is is that how it works we, too?
2: Yeah, we really encourage that. We really encourage that. I mean, going back to, I mean, the, obviously Janet was the most famous one, but when Janet came to town. Um, we probably spent four or five days just hanging out together before we ever went into the studio. And she didn't even know, she said, what are we doing? And it, and it was like, we're just hanging out. She said, well, when are we going to start working? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the lyrics to, or the beginning lyrics of control. And she said, well, wait, this is what we've been talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about. I said, yeah. <laughs> and it was like a light bulb went off in her head. She was like, oh my God, well, I want to talk about this. And I want to talk about this. And it was the thing that got her going. So most of the time, we always want to include the artist in that process. And either they have the seed of an idea, but normally a lot of it is just a conversation. We'll sit with the artist and have long conversations about their life, their thing, whatever. And a lot of times, I'll be sitting at a keyboard. I'll start playing something. Sometimes the artist will go, "Wait, what is that you're playing?" And it's like, "I'm just playing some based on your conversation." And a lot of times, that'll turn into a song. Mm-hmm. So we always want to involve the artist in the creative process
0: so you and uh, terry and morris Dan that you guys were uh, were the time uh great yeah. great band uh love it the bird and jungle all that stuff so at some point is it true that prince was opening for you no that was never true that was I mean, never it, true and no that was never true in the early days your of- wikipedia page by the way has got that wrong
2: Oh, really? That's interesting. I I haven't even looked at my Wikipedia page, but, you know, um, no, we all played in local bands back in the day. And um, we had Battle of the Bands. Uh, I, you know, Terry had Flight Time. I was in a different band called Mind and Matter back Mm. in that day. This is 70s we're talking about. And then um, Prince had a band called Grand Central. And uh, so everybody had their own, were doing their own thing. But no, when we went out, we always opened for Prince. And a lot of nights we kicked his ass, which was pretty cool. (laughs) Um, Matter matter of fact, we never played with Prince in New York and in L.A. because that was back in the day. This is before Twitter and, and social media and all that. But the L.A. Times and the New York Times were the papers. And you had to get great reviews in those papers. Hmm. And interestingly enough, when he played Madison Square Garden and when he played the Forum in L.A., which were the, you know, obviously Madison Square Garden still there, but the Forum was the place to play. Yes. We, we weren't on those bills. No, you weren't. We, no, we played We played Long Beach and we <laughs> played, uh, I'm trying to think in New York where we played um, somewhere, but not in New York.
1: Jones Beach. Did you ever play out in Jones Beach?
2: No, we didn't play Jones Beats. I can't remember the name or where we played, but it was, oh, Nassau Coliseum, I think is where we played. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but never, not Madison Square Garden and not the Forum. We didn't play in those two places. And funny enough, actually, we did play, but we played as the backup band for Vanity 6. Oh, wow. Literally in the building, but didn't get a chance to perform. So.
0: So, uh, let's see, you've worked with so many geniuses, like like literally, you, you worked with Prince, you worked with Aretha Franklin, you worked with George Michael, you worked with Janet Jack. I mean, just, just a, a who's who. Um, are there, have there been, without throwing anybody under the bus, have there been artists that you've struggled with because they're inflexible or not open to input or anything like that?
2: No, because we do, we always had a pretty good vetting process <laughs> about mm-hmm. who we worked with. And we wanted to, Terry always calls it hang factor. It's okay. like, we want to work with people we would hang out with, whether we were working with them or not. So you can kind of size people up with that. Um, I think probably the toughest one, or certainly the most talked about one that people know about is, uh, is Human League. Right. And, and Human League was interesting for a lot of reasons. One, obviously there was, there was shock for them coming from, you know, Sheffield, England. Like They weren't even coming from the big city, like London, England. They were coming from Sheffield, England all the way to Minneapolis in the middle of winter, which is, you know, culture shock in, in a big way. Uh, and then I think creatively they felt like um, they were trying to make a record that sounded like us. And John McClain, who I mentioned earlier about Janet being the A and R person, he was also the AR person for Human League. And he said to the Human League, You're trying to make a record that sounds like Jam and Lewis, why don't you just get Jam and Lewis to do the record? Hmm. So that's how that happened. So um, and obviously, we came out with a with a really big hit, which was Human. Yeah, but it was a it was a bit of a struggle, and and to this day, I haven't talked to Phil Oakey, who's the lead singer. Um, but at the end of the day, I, we enjoyed the process of working with them. But it was a little bit. Um, it was probably the rockiest one I can I can remember. Hmm.
1: Have, have you ever had a situation, because I'm a writer and I've been in a lot of writers rooms where, you know, we're writing a script all week and, you know, we're, we we start on Monday and we tape on Friday and then Wednesday we throw the entire script out and do a page one rewrite. Have you done that with a, with a song? And then the result was something like unbelievable, like such a departure from what you started with?
2: Wow. That's a great question. Um. I think we have. I'm trying to think whether anything, though, immediately pops into mind. Um, we've definitely had things that didn't work. And and our joke about it is always, we like this so much, we're just going to keep this to ourselves. <laughs> 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 um, so, um, but I'm, I'm sure there has been, but I, I mean, I can't, re- in recent times, I can't really think of something that doesn't work because once you get, well, you know what, actually, Actually, yes. I mean, well, but it it was an artist that didn't work, that we weren't compatible with. It was somebody that, there was was an artist, a female artist we were working with, this is a while back, and everybody said, oh, you got to work with her, you got to work with her. And we were like, okay. And so she came up to Minneapolis. We wrote a couple songs. It just wasn't working. And we just were like, okay, this isn't working. We just went away from it. And those songs I mentioned earlier, normally songs don't really get repurposed, but those couple of songs we did for her actually got repurposed with Usher. Oh, wow. And Mm. in a totally different way. I mean, they by no means were they at the same song, but it certainly would be kind of the equivalent of ripping up the uh, paper and starting over on a Wednesday. But Mm -hmm. it it wasn't the same show, though. It was a different show or a different episode, I guess you could say, in an analogy. But, um, yeah, so that has happened. But I can't think of anything that totally comes to mind. Cause normally the idea we just kind of, yeah, we scrap it and then start over again with, with something new. So there's, yeah, that has happened for
0: sure. So you and Terry and Morris day and the time performed on the 50th Grammy awards. Uh, I'm curious, you guys were fantastic. It was like the highlight of the night, uh, for a lot of people. What was that night like? And then how much rehearsal time did it take to get back into time shape?
2: Well, um, It's interesting first of all because time shape for us was literally doing the one performance as opposed to doing you know 45 minutes or an hour or whatever right you know so we weren't fully in time shape but we were good (laughs) enough to pull off one song on one night um it would probably be that night would definitely be in my top 10 of all time favorite nights for for a lot of reasons Um, one, I was the chairman of the recording Academy at that point in time, and there had never been a chairman perform on the show. Oh, wow. And that was one of the things that that Ken Ehrlich, who was executive producing the show at that point, when he came to me, he said, there's never been an executive, uh, you know, a a, a chairman perform on the show. So I'd like you to perform on the show. And what I conceive is you're going to come out like you're going to give a speech and then Jerome's going to come out, put the key around your head, and we launch into it. So that was his idea. Nice. And so that was great. But also, because I was the chairman, it was the busiest week ever in my life because I had all of the Grammy events that I have to go to because everybody knows the show, but there's events all week and different things. So I had to be at every event, speak, do whatever. Um, the pre, uh, at the time, they were called the pre tales Now it's called the premiere telecast, which is what we give away before the broadcast. Um, I presented at that. Which I enjoy doing. So we did that, and I remember at one point during the week, somebody said, "Are you concerned about the performance?" And I said, "No, the performance is five minutes. I said, "I got a whole three and a half hour show <laughs> that I'm in charge of. <laughs> that that's what I'm concerned about is whatever everybody else is doing. I think we're gonna be okay. And also it was Rihanna's, you know, not her big break necessarily because she was already kind of known. But it really kind of propelled her to a different level. And I remember the whole week uh, she kept saying when people ask about, oh, you're performing with the time. Isn't that great? And she kept going, yeah, this 80s band called um, the time. Like <laughs> she <laughs> had no clue, you know. So, uh, but it was great. I mean, it was just, uh, like I say, def- definitely in my top 10 nights of all time.
0: So you and uh, Terry are now making music uh, apart from uh, you're making your own music, right? T- tell, me, tell me what you guys are doing. So shameless plug, but we're now on vinyl. Nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're now on vinyl, Jam and Lewis, Volume 1. Yeah, so the What Have You Done For Me Lately story was relevant uh, at, at the beginning of our talk today because that was the song, and this was the album that we had started making 35 years <laughs> ago. Um, and, uh, you know, when Janet took What Have You Done For Me Lately, we kind of put it aside. And when we went to the Songwriters Hall of Fame about five years ago, they said, what have you... What haven't you done that you still want to do? And I remember we looked at Babyface and we said, "Well, we never did a record with Babyface, so we did mm. that. It's on our on our album." And we said we never released our album ever, so now we got our album out. The other thing we haven't done is we haven't uh, ever played our songs live, and hopefully next year we'll be able to do that. Nice. But, but we finally got our album out. We love it. I mean, we, we're very happy with it, and um, the response has been wonderful. Uh, we just celebrated the year anniversary. Of it, which is why now we have it on vinyl because it took a year literally to get vinyl because Adele had taken up all the vinyl pressing plants. Oh. For her. Oh. <laughs> Adele and, and little, you know, Adele and, can be uh, such a pain in the ass. I'm telling you, I told her that we actually she, she <laughs> actually came to uh, when my daughter graduated. She came to the uh, to her dinner afterwards, and I told her, I said, "What's up with, we can't get our vinyl because you, you're taking over all the vinyl plants." And stuff. She <laughs> probably, so. Anyway, good good stuff, man, but but thank you. We're we're really proud of it. We're really happy with it. We got to work with a lot of our favorite artists, Mary J. Blige being one of them, who's on there. And actually, there's a remix of one of the Mary song that's coming out uh, very soon uh, that we're really excited about, too. So
0: Cool, cool. So you're voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. What is, I mean, I guess the induction is December? Uh, I like think you November, told me. November, November 5th. November. So what's it mean to be there at the rock and roll hall of fame well
2: i i have too many thoughts on it that i I can't even articulate them yet um but i do feel like you know when you on your tombstone or your epitaph you know there will be grammy Award something Mm -hmm. and now there will be rock and roll hall of fame something because i guess i guess it's that level of of achievement of, of accomplishment. I think for us it's just it's the consistency of what we've done and the an- amount of connections that we've had across music because people, you know, on the short list you always know, you know, Janet or or, or you know Michael Jackson or, you know, you know those things. But I realize we also have worked with Sting and we worked with Rod Stewart and we work with Brian Adams. And, you know, it's it's like kind of our, our musical depth or whatever has been kind of, I think part of what's kind of made us there and, and our consistency over the years. Cause as you said, 40 years this year. Yeah. Doing it. Um, and obviously c- the connection to Prince, which is huge. Um, so I think all of those things, but I also think it's a, it's a celebratory uh, night or will be a celebratory night for all the people that along the way have helped you know, get us to this point because we don't do it by ourselves. It really is a team effort. And uh, and I think it, uh, Minneapolis should be really proud as a city because I think growing up there really shaped a lot of what we do. And um, so, yeah, I, it's just on all levels. I can't really, I'm sorry, I can't articulate it better. But it's it's kind of like, you know, when you say a dream come true, we never even had that dream. Wow. I think we might've dreamed about, winning a Grammy probably was a dream. But Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, no, not even on the radar. And and yeah. I'll tell you, my partner, Terry, which not a lot really moves him, but we were talking the other day and he's just can't believe it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: Well, congratulations. It's well-deserved.
1: I mean, it's it's got to be the Holy Grail, huh? I mean, the Holy yeah. Grail of, of accomplishment. I mean, what an honor.
2: Yeah, it's just like I say, I just, I just think it's consistency over... A long period of time and but we i will say we set out to do that in the very beginning we we had an article we uh the first article that was kind of written about us after control hit really big there was a local paper in minneapolis and a guy named john green was the writer he's still writing actually mm. he's still the longest music writer i think at, at, out of all the newspapers but anyway he writes an article the first thing he asked us though he said how does it feel to be the hottest producers and we said, well we don't really want to be the hottest producers we just want to be warm for a long time <laughs> <laughs> And when he interviewed us well he interviewed us re- well he interviewed us when our album came out but I remember uh, when Janet's the last time we did with Janet was five years ago uh, unbreakable and I remember when Unbreakable came out it entered number one on the billboard chart and he said, you realize you guys have had number one albums across, you know, the eighties, nineties, thousands, two 2010s, and now the 2015. So like five, five decades of number one records. And we yeah. said, well, remember what we told you the first time you talked to us? And he said, what's that? And we said warm for a long time. Warm and he just for kinda laughed. Time.
0: He just laughed. And I, said, I like that. I like so. that. So uh, I'm not going to let you go without asking you how you think the Lakers are going to be this year.
2: I don't think they're going to be very good. and, and <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing. It's not so much that the Lakers aren't going to be good. It's just that the other teams are so good. Yeah. Um. And I think the Lakers also—they already did what they did. You know, it was the bubble, so people like to put an asterisk on it, but I—I I disagree with that. Yeah, I, mean, I do too. I, I just think if you you want, and they, I think they already have done that. They've already achieved that. I think it's really, it's going to come down to health, health because they're not going to have a lot of depth. Yep. And so I think a healthy Laker team has a shot because I never would bet against LeBron. Yeah. But I just think the health of the team, and of course, LeBron will play less games, you know, whether it's load management, he won't call it that, but the nagging injuries and those types sure, of things. Sure. as you get older, it's the recovery. It's not that you can't still do what you do. It's just the recovery. I can stay in the studio all night and Try to get something done. The problem is the next day, (laughs) I can't do the next day now. I but I, you know, in the old days I could just go day after day and do that. Now I got to like take a
0: rest the next day. Yeah, I hear you, man. I hear you. All
1: all right. Well, I want to know: Are the Knicks ever going to be good
0: again? (laughs) Mm, No.
2: I don't. I can't even remember when were the Knicks good.
0: I can't even remember. I well, mean, they were I good
1: in the seventies. They were great. I mean, that's you know, that's Willis Reed years. You know, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. also
0: like fifty <laughs> years ago.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I I know. That's why I'm saying, are they ever going to be good? I mean, Porzingis, he he kind of put a spark in the team for a while, but yeah, but they haven't been good since I'm a kid. Yeah, it's it's it's
2: it's tough because it it seems like it's from the top down. If that makes sense. It's yes, it the does. That you said. I mean, obviously, the, the best example of that in, in, in success is obviously what uh, Golden State has done, where yep. really from the top down, they've done it the right way. And uh, the Knicks continue to, you know, normally something changes, right? So you can change coaches, you can change players, you can do all of that. I think maybe it's time to change the the owner at the Can't change now. the owner. That's Order? right.
1: Yeah. Right, right. Well, you know, you look at what happened with the Mets, you know. They got a new owner. They Absolutely. got a new manager. That yes. And the team is completely different.
0: And Sue is a big Mets fan, so she's she's beaming while having this conversation. <laughs> ah, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, listen, Jimmy. Thank you very much for doing this. A really, really great talk, and uh, congratulations again on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I look forward. Anytime I get a text, I'm like, Oh, Jimmy Jam just texted me. Oh, your daughter. I meant to ask you about your daughter. She's on the yeah. cover. You sent me the cover of uh, Bazaar magazine, I think. Right? Yes, I have a,
2: a small version of it here. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, Beautiful. nice on my desk. That's but, very cool. Uh, but it's, it's great. And, and, you know, once again, full circle moments. There's many of them in my, in my life. But my wife actually graduated from Fashion Institute uh, of Design and Merchandise. Uh, and my daughter graduated from the very same school. Oh, and wow. The very same. When we went to the, her graduation, uh, it was the very same uh, woman who was the professor or, or the dean, I guess, of the school when my wife graduated. Wow. It also. Yeah. So it was very much a full circle moment. But my daughter was interesting because she said she had been modeling since she was 13. She actually got signed at 13 and she's been modeling. And it's interesting though, that her thought was, I need to go to school because I need to learn because I want to learn because she wants to do her own line of clothes and those kinds of things. And she's 22 and she says, I can't model forever. Like, so she's already thinking <laughs> already about Already at it. 22, she's saying that. <laughs> well, we she have, started
1: at 13, so. Yeah,
2: exactly. And, our, and it's funny because our, our, our guest house during COVID, our kids all moved back home. And so my son is staying in our guest house, but she made the whole downstairs of the guest house. Um, like there's sewing machines, there's forms, there's like, and all that. And she's like working on her stuff.
0: So no, oh, that's amazing. It's, it's that's amazing. I'm, I'm
2: very proud of, but I'm proud of all my
0: kids. Yeah. Well, listen, very, very cool. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it guys. And there is Jimmy Jam, who is a friend and will text me during the show and tell me when I've said something stupid. So I get a lot of text messages from Jimmy Jam.
1: Does he really do stuff like that? He does,
0: absolutely. Yeah, oh, he absolutely cool. does. Jimmy's wow. a he's a regular listener to the radio show. I mean, just I the scale of what he has done in his career is just extraordinary.
1: You know what's so impressive is the cross-section of talent. You know, you look in 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 other in 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 other facets of show business. Like you take writers, you know, usually they kind of stay in their lane. Yes, you know, that's what's so impressive to me about someone like Jordan Peele. You know, here is this like comedian, yeah, you know, who did sketch stuff, and now he's become like the master of horror. Films, he's like Alfred you know? Hitchcock now. Yeah, it, it's crazy. So when you look at the 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 uh, the the different. Uh, types of artists, you know, like, you know, Jessica Simpson, and then you have, you know, Herb Albert, you know, Rod Stewart, and Thelma Houston, you know, right, right, you know, so it's, it's very, very impressive. And of course, the staying power of, of having hit after hit after hit for as long as he has and staying relevant for so long is uh, really commendable. I like
0: that quote. We don't want to be hot. We want to be warm for a long time. (laughs) Longevity, man. Longevity. All right. Hey, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Sue, thanks as always. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop
1: Podcast.